somehow fallen to me, my great honor and privilege indeed, to uh, stand here next to Paul Zoll, a man whom I've served under for so many years, Paul, um, and I won't say anything at length so we can uh, hurry and hear about Paul's new book, PZ's Panopticon, a, an off-the-wall guide to world religion. Um, but Paul, Mayman and I were talking last night, and, uh, and I'm going to say this without trying to be too emotional, but just to, uh, as, as we were talking and in conversation, it came out of my mouth, like, I don't know that Paul realizes the, 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 the depth of the tracks that he has left in so many of us. And I just started rattling off these names, and they came so quickly. And it's your, uh, your ministry has affected so many of us in so many deep and profound ways. It's just such an honor and a privilege to have you here and have us back. So thank you, Paul. Thank you. Really thank you very much. Would you pray for us? Thank you. Um, inspire me, dear God, and give us a, uh, a fun and uh, helpful and uplifting evening for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, Gil is uh, so thin currently in his bodily expression that he, I am, as soon as I saw him today, I said, honey, I shrunk the kids. You know, I, he, it was so funny looking at Gil. I'm, I'm sure it's a happy thing for him, but uh, I think he ought to cut it out. Now, you can't hear. Is the mic, is the mic on? Oh, so I'm talking in a normal voice then. Okay, I'm sorry, Charles. I'm going to have to talk in a normal voice. Well, um, why don't you come and sit up here? I don't want to put anybody on the spot. If I talk, you sit with Mary, uh, Lella. That's a fit, something you can't possibly not want to do. <laughs> now, um, if, if I speak in a voice about this, uh, there's Dr. Ball. Hello, Jean. If I speak uh, in a voice uh, about like this, can people, most people hear me? Yes. Okay. Good. Well, I want to uh, uh, say how delighted I am uh, today. There was a slight mix-up at church today in terms of how I was going to be after the service, and there were all sorts of people that I wasn't able to greet because I was sort of sitting with two or three people signing one or two books while everybody that I wanted to see was in another place. Tomorrow we'll do it differently um, so I can at least shake hands with people uh, whom I love and care for. And uh, uh, Mary is here tonight uh, for this visit. It was almost exactly... Exactly 20 years ago today that we were called to come to the Church of the Advent, or that we did come to the Church of the Advent. Uh, so that means something to me. Let's try this. Okay. You, you do this. Okay. Now, uh, is that a little more? Uh, can, can you hear a little better? Okay. Thank you, Gil. Um, Andrew Pearson um, is a master of logistics because he immediately had eye contact with Gil. Uh, and that's the, <laughs> uh, the thing about being uh, the dean of the Advent or the rector or in charge of any uh, human institution is you have to see the forest and the trees. And you sometimes have people who see the trees and don't see the forest, and they're the worst. And sometimes you have people who see the forest but don't see the trees, and that's not ideal. Uh, but then you get a, a young man. Someone recently said that, well, Andrew has a Andrew and Lauren have a long runway. And I said, what do you mean by a long runway? And what they meant is he can stay for 25 years. <laughs> so, so I thought that was a very nice uh, way of uh, putting it. He doesn't amused. Now, um, the uh, what I'd like to do tonight is talk about um, this. Uh, 
what I tried to do in my new book uh, called the PZ's Panopticon, an off-the-wall guide to world religion. I'd like to summarize what I was trying to do and trying to say in that book in a way that I hope may be uh, of interest to, to you, and then uh, perhaps take some questions, and then I may invite Mary to chime in, especially if I'm caught speechless before something, uh, and um, then perhaps I could sign a couple books of, or something like that. Um, but I, I think we'll end promptly at 8.30, if not uh, before. Okay. Um, I do want to mention one other thing before I begin. Um, on the 4th of April in New York City, a reception and book signing party is being held in honor of this book, which is a Festschrift. And a Festschrift is the uh, technical academic term for a book in honor of a professor uh, in which uh, people who, with whom that person has uh, uh, been in engagement theoretically for 25 years write essays in his honor. And this book is called Comfortable Words, Essays in Honor of Myself. And it is, um, it is uh, that sounds like Song of Myself, doesn't it, by Walt Whitman. <laughs> but it, it is... Um, it's, it's turned out extremely well. It was edited by two graduate students, one in Germany and one in uh, England, and is, uh, has essays from uh, theologians all over the world. And it begins with a discussion of what they call my theology of grace, which is a complete misnomer. But the reason to buy the book, and it is expensive, so don't buy it. Uh, but the reason to buy the book is that they gave me the privilege, and I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with the idea of it, the production of it, or the substance of it. But they gave me a chance to write a short essay at the end called um, Guard of Honor, Envoi, and Epilogue which is a reflection on what I tried to teach at the Church of the Advent in particular. And they gave me a chance to write sort of a current understanding of what I think that is personally. And I was very pleased with the last five pages of the book. Anyway, <laughs> I, I can't help but mention this because it will, it will premiere, if you're in New York, on the 4th of April. The uh, book party for it is in the Chapel of St. George's Episcopal Church on Stuyvesant Square from 5.30 to 7. And you'd be so, uh, I'd be so delighted to see you. Now, the, um, um, the book Pisi's Panopticon, uh, and I'm not going to just rehearse what it's about. I'm going to give you the short version, is a book that... Um, uh, it came out of an acute crisis in my own experience that occurred after I left uh, Birmingham with Mary in 2004. And I don't need to go into the details of it. And I didn't, in the book, specifically go into the details of it because they're not the point. But I did um, uh, come to a place where I realized that the uh, most... Um, important place to look at the question of God and the question of the human being. This is a fairly serious talk. I'll try to make it light, you know, <laughs> as possible, but it is, by definition, a fairly serious talk. Um, but this, um, uh, uh, the, the, the place uh, 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 from which to look at the uh, salient questions of human existence is the deathbed. And specifically, 
not so much the deathbed as the near-death experience. Because at that point, those people I know who have had one, and many have, many have in different forms, they see that um, almost everything that they were interested in thinking about and almost everything that preoccupied them in their lives are meaningless and lame. That's actually what people believe. And you have had these experiences. When you come to a point, something happens in your life, which sort of, it's like a, a sudden photographic light in which you see that so much of what you've been thinking was important or riveting or, or, or uh, worthy of your energy, you saw it in a different light. Recently, we were in correspondence with Anne Long, uh, uh, who is a great friend of ours in England, and she came and spent a week living with the Caraways and did wonderful talks here. And uh, we were discussing someone that she knew well and I knew well who was an extremely rough customer, about the roughest customer I ever met as a person. And Anne Long, who's now a retired canon in the Church of England, said, well, I feel certain that she now sees things in a somewhat different light <laughs> now, only an Englishman could say that. She said she was certain that this rough customer probably was seeing things now, having died. The person has died recently. I forgot to mention the most important thing. We were speaking of someone that we both knew well who had died. And she said, well, I, perhaps she is now seeing things in a different light. Well, isn't that interesting to say? Well, I said, well, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, what um, the, uh, the, um, uh, the book is posited on the experience of someone who is having a code red heart attack at St. Vincent's Hospital and is, um, finds herself or himself oddly on the ceiling looking down at her or his body being frantically treated by emergency physicians. And uh, this person who you are is oddly looking down on uh, your body being uh, attempted to be revived. And you're in a position, you might say, I see things in a different light. <laughs> and at a moment like that, the, um, all the questions of life and all the activities of life do in fact appear in a different light. Now I won't ask you if you've ever had an experience like that, but I have known several individuals just like you, I mean regular people, who have had this experience in one sort or another in connecting with a medical emergency. For me, it was a sort of a kind of what some people call a fugue state I, I was in a situation where <clears throat> I was reading a document that concerned myself and I, I had a near-death experience because I said to myself, this can't be happening, this must not be real, this must be a dream from which I will surely awaken at any moment. And I literally saw myself, I sort of began to talk to myself as if I was here, but I was here. So I was here reading a document, right, in a normal business day. But another part of me is saying, Paul, 
this is a dream. This is a nightmare. This, this simply cannot be happening. So it was like I was in a discussion with myself. And it was so powerful, I literally went zoop up, up to the roof. And I, I, I looked down and I couldn't, I simply couldn't uh, understand that there were two people talking. There was me looking at myself and there was me experiencing something that was quite unexpected and quite upsetting. So I began to think, what really um, means anything to me? W what in this situation am I counting on? What, uh, uh, more especially, what could help me in a situation like this? What is it, what can help me? That was what I was thinking because of so many things that I thought might help me seemed um, like on the margins or not at all relevant to what I was needing at the time. So um, uh, I, I, after I thought about that, I realized that the only way to look at life is to look at it from that point of view. Now, that's not true to say it's the only way to look at life. But my way of looking at life altered because when I saw that, that, that I, was, I was in that 10 minutes before I'm literally dead, and I've got about 10 minutes or five minutes to sort of figure out what was this all about? What is this all about? Who am I and where am I going? I mean, you've all seen the painting in Boston, right, by Gauguin, which is never there when you go. I've gone to Boston <laughs> twice just to see this painting, and it's always a big blank wall saying it's on loan to the museum of such and such. And I've never seen it in the flesh, but it's called Where Did We Come From? Where où sommes nous? Where are we? And où gaillons? Oh, no, that's a German. Où, uh, uh, où allons nous? Or whatever. Where are we going? And it's about, it's a huge picture by Gauguin, and it's one of the great works of all time because it captures that sense of mystification in relationship to when you ask the deep question. So the introduction to this little talk is that the 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 nature of our lives at that moment uh, have a kind of urgency that most of the time we don't really um, identify with. Um, is it a little warm in here or am I just wearing a very heavy jacket? Oh. Praise God. Um, <laughs> and, uh, hey, Sally, Bill. Um, so the first word I want to give you is urgent. That's the word, urgent. And I want to say that life is urgent for two reasons. Then I want to talk a little bit about Christianity, our religion. I want to talk a little bit about the East, religions of the East, which are quite substantially subscribed to uh, around our country. And then I want to talk about a few religions that are not called religions. And then I want to conclude with a prayer that I wrote for a dying person. Because the book that I wrote climaxes in a mystical experience that I actually had. Don't worry, I'm not going to freak you, weird you out, but, I, but, but, but these things are real to me. They're, they're real to me, and I suspect they're quite real to some of you. Um, you all remember the song by Foreigner, right? Uh, I, when I was here, I used to always say that, uh, I, I didn't say it here, I said it elsewhere, but I always said that rock and roll reached its absolute climax, its absolute terminus, from which nothing new and creative could be done in rock and roll with what great group? Journey. 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 Well, now that's a very funny thing to say in case you care. Um, but but those, of us who, those of us who like that kind of music realize that Journey stood on the shoulders of a group called Foreigner, 
again, I'm not getting any response from you, and hey, it's all right, it's okay. <laughs> but uh, you know about these things. And Foreigner wrote a very famous song that was a top 10 song in the 80s called Urgent, Urgent emergency, urgent, 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 emergency. And that song, I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard a million times. Whether you've never heard a foreigner, you've been in a place, five guys, you know, or you've been in some oldies hamburger place where they play the song. And foreigner had a tremendous insight into the nature of what people actually feel under duress whether it's romantic or physically uh, uh, threatening, urgency. And the thing about urgency is this. It's important to look at life urgently for two reasons. One is almost too obvious and is a bit of a cliche. The fact is that death does not come on our schedule. And I say this because I've seen it very recently in my personal life. I mean, I mean my mother died out of the blue completely unexpectedly, 10 years younger than she expected to go, and no one expected it, least of all herself. And there was no uh, warning whatsoever, and one day she's on the telephone, and the uh, next day she's gone from this world. So, um, I, I, but you know this. Am I telling you anything that haven't, you haven't seen in somebody's life? So um, we do, in a f way, we would wish to die prepared in some sense, uh, we would because of the nature of it. it went, you, you don't want to uh, sort of not have thought about your life. And of course, this is obvious for everybody here. But you want to think about these things before you were caught unawares. Although, interestingly enough, some people aren't ca caught unawares at all and last for 120 years. I mean, the number of people who live too long is, is that's really, there are a lot of them. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so it, it, it goes both ways. But the, the second thing about urgency is, um, one of the things I find, I certainly found it in me, but I see it in a lot of older men. I see it in a lot of older men. I'm, I don't, I'm sure that there are many women who feel the same way, but I have seen it more in older men personally. I've seen it in hundreds of them. They get to a certain stage in their life and they say, what was all that about? What was my career actually about? What did what did what was I really doing for 35? They're over here, Bob. They're right there. Uh, what was I? They are over there. Uh, what um, what was I doing? Uh, what did it all amount to? I mean, you've heard the song I quoted at the Advent. Is that all there is? What was I doing? Or uh, so, sometimes women will say, well, it goes like this. I brought this child into the world. I loved her. I did everything for her. She was my whole life. And you know, I haven't talked to her for 12 years. Now, I know that's not true in your life, but there are people who actually can honestly say, I haven't talked to my daughter for 12 years. And that, they come to a point of depression because they say, what was I doing all these years that it, uh, now I'm all alone and I don't hear from her or him and I don't understand it. They, they don't understand it. The, my current fave in pop music is a Canadian rock star named Burton Cummings. And he's really worth studying. He's 67 years old. And he was the, he was the lead singer for the Guess Who, for what that's worth. He was the lead singer, Charles. He was a lead singer for the Guess Who, and he was a great pop star in his day. But he wrote a song uh, in a recent album at age 66. He's produced an incredible rock album of his thoughts on old age. And he says, I made my own bed, but I don't understand it. He doesn't say, I made my own bed and I'm unhappy. 
or I made my own bed and I better just accept it. He says, I made my own bed, but I don't understand it. And the urgency, therefore, is not just sudden death, because that's an abstraction to most of us. I mean, it'll happen, but it's not in our timing. But there is a kind of, I meet an awful lot of people who begin to say at a certain stage of life, what was I really thinking that I was doing? What was that marriage actually about? What was that man? How did I ever get bamboozled into thinking that I could be happy with him for 43 years? What a waste. I, I'm t that, but some people actually think that. Or this career, all I really wanted to do was be a waiter uh, at night in a restaurant in New York. But I became instead a famous actress. Where did I go wrong? Well, you, you see what I'm saying. The, the, so, so that's why it's urgent. So this book is an attempt to understand the religions of the world, each of which is attempting to answer the human problem of urgent questioning about the meaning of life and the question of God and the matter of death, trying to give us something. Are you with me so far? Mary, have I, have I made that relatively succinct? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah sure. Sure. Okay. Great. Um, okay. Fine. 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 Okay. Great. Great. Praise God. Now, the, the, now this is what, what I'm just going to, what I found. So, so it, it, it certainly helped me to go into a near-death fugue because I was able to sort of ask questions of religion that were not based upon intellectuality. They were not based upon history. They were, not, they were just me uh, looking down on myself saying, you know, what in the name of heaven has happened that I'm here? I mean, you know, that song, uh, that song Burning Down the House by the, uh, talking the Talking Heads. I mean, who is this man? You know, who is this man? I'm, I'm, I'm Gil Cracky and I'm wearing clothes that are too big for me. Who, who am I? I, I? You know what I mean? I mean I, I'm just, I, you know, or Paul Zoll. I mean, you know, who, who, is, who is this? You know, where did these green corduroys come from? You know, what, what is this? Of all these sorts of things that you ask for yourself. So, so the, the question of the book, and I, I think the book is, is uh, the book is about a man or a woman who's having to ask uh, questions of religion, uh, and he or she has 10 minutes to do it. That's the book. That's the whole book. So now what I'll do is I'll tell you how I see two of the world religions in that light, and then I'll talk briefly about religions that are no religion, that are not called religions, and this is what a lot of people have trouble with that chapter. To me, it's obvious, but, but it's not obvious to everybody, obviously. And then I'll finally <laughs> quote, then I'll finally conclude with, a, with this prayer that I prayed. Um, when you're on the ceiling and you've got about eight minutes left, and uh, unless they bring you back, I mean, I can't tell you how many people this has happened to. I mean, I mean, that I know as well as I know you. I mean, Denver, right? You know, one of my dearest friends in the world recently died. I mean, I've known him. I know him really well, and he recently died while running. Um, while jogging, he's a very jock and he's very good shape. And he died while running uh, in Washington Park in Denver, Colorado. But he died clinically, but not fully. And unbelievably, about 20 feet behind him jogging was a physician, a young physician who saw this man collapse, revived him. The ER people came rapidly and the man was revived. And he was out forever. And um, he, uh, he, they did a, a special on the Denver News about this man. 
And um, you can imagine how different his life is now. He would have to tell you. So um, what I found is that some religions are great, but they're not really good in this situation. In other words, they tell you how to live, maybe how to be a good dad. Judaism, for example, is the best religion in the world on how to be a good dad. If those of us who are Gentiles could have one wish to be better fathers, it would be to become Jewish. Because Jew, by just there's something about it, and there are reasons for this, Jewish dads are so much better than Gentile dads. I mean, Gentile dads are like Willie Loman in the Death of a Salesman. <laughs> they are. We're all focused on our careers. We can't help it. We are completely focused on non-important things, certainly our sons. And sons have to have fathers who are completely in their corner. I mean, son, I don't care if you get arrested. I in Lompoc Penitentiary, I am your father, and I will stand with you if it's the last breath I take. Now, the great advantage of a religion like Judaism, it spawns brilliant fathers. And it's just an extraordinary thing. But that doesn't mean anything to me when I'm on the ceiling. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I, 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 it means a lot to me when I'm 12, and it means a lot when I'm 16. But it means nothing when I'm on the ceiling because it's too late. <laughs> it's too late to talk about good fathers, even if I've been a lousy one. Um, Islam is an incredible religion. It has a lot in common with Mormonism. It's so good on family life. If you really want to have a wonderful family life where, where the nuclear family really works, the Islamic religion is the best religion for, for having a strong nuclear family. It's the whole thing. It's, it's, it, I mean, if you know, have you ever heard of a, of a young Islamic boy who's grown up in an Islamic family who actually goes off to Jackson Hole and becomes a hippie? They don't exist. There are none. I mean, apparently there's one who became a topless model in Brussels. And, but apparently, you know, I said, she can't really be Muslim because they don't do it. They don't react. They don't do it. And it turned out she was really Catholic. She said she was Muslim. But <laughs> what, what I, because the family life is so strong, people are so totally receive the backing of their mothers and fathers and their extended family in Islam that they're, 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 they never revolt. That's why I look at Friday prayers on the news. Have you ever seen so many young men at prayers? I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, um, but that doesn't help me when I'm on the ceiling. I don't really care whether I had a good family life or whether I had a good teenage, you know, good mom for being a teenager when I have 10 minutes left. So um, then you come to the profoundest religions. And the two profound religions in the world, the two really profound religions of the world, and they offer both individually interesting insights. One is Christianity, and the other is a certain tendency in the East and I want to talk about them briefly. The uh, great uh, uh, and the absolute uh, crux of our religion as Christians is one thing and one thing only. Now, I, Mary doesn't like it when I speak absolutely. I, I, I meant that. I shouldn't speak absolutely. Christianity has many great virtues. But one thing it has that no other religion has ever communicated in the same respect and intensity. And it's the forgiveness of, of, a, of a wayward, troubled, acting out human being. Christianity offers forgiveness, and it actually offers forgiveness with no uh, possible codicils or appendices. That's really true. Now, the trouble is, as we learned at the Advent over 10 years, that's a new message.
for many people who've grown up in the church that God came into the world to save sinners, that God's primary interest is sinners and human beings, not anybody else. Now, fortunately, we all are that, so that doesn't really bifurcate the human race. But that's the essence of Christianity. And anything else is great, but is not existentially the rub. That thing which makes Christianity and Jesus Christ in particular the most remarkable human being is that he actually seemed to know what people were like and yet to love them without any caveat or little extra sort of thing. You know, honey, I really like you, but I was counseling a couple in James Island. Uh, South Carolina, and they were both wonderful people, both, of course, divorced, and lovely, lovely people, and, and, and I, she said, well, you, you, I don't like it, uh, whatever his name was, because you, you, I always feel like you're trying to change me, and he said, well, the trouble with you is, you don't have any plan for your life, you don't have any vision for your life, you don't really know where you're going, and I, I just felt for this woman, I mean, how can you love somebody who's lecturing you about you don't have any, you don't know where you're going? I mean, you don't know where you're going. But I then, but I, and I, needless to say, we're another divorce is in the notches on the belt. You know what I'm saying? So um, the great thing that Christianity says to me when I'm on the roof is that everything I ever did and everything I ever thought and everything I ever said is beside the point. Uh, Jesus uh, said that we should forgive every action that we ever take and every ill word 400 and, what is it, 7 times 70? 490 times. So let's say I was brisk with Mary or I was judgmental with one of my children or I put down somebody else. According to this, when we die and even now, we are forgiven 490 times per action. So that makes Christianity really uh, the odd man out in the religions of the world. And I find that extremely helpful and good and wonderful. And I don't care what anybody says about, well, is this going to encourage? At the point that I'm talking about, I don't care if it encourages license. I don't care if it encourages thievery. I do not care if it encourages self-indulgent, self-pity. I just want to know that I'm forgiven. That's all I want to know. And Christianity, and specifically this one particular remarkable man, um, said that and showed it and he expressed it. So that's the great thing about our faith. And there's no other religion which doesn't draw some kind of fence around that. That's point one. The East, now what I found, what the East did, the East um, understands that... Um, <laughs> somewhere thousands of years ago, somewhere, and it's not associated with Buddhism or Hinduism, I don't know where it came from. I don't have any idea. I don't want to give you some picture of some funny god smiling or some, you know, you know a collie, you know. I don't, I don't have any, that I could care less. Jack Kerouac said, Jack Kerouac, who was a Roman Catholic, a devout Roman Catholic, Jack Kerouac said to his friend uh, who became a famous, uh, Allen Ginsberg, he said, Alan, I don't really care about the flavors of any other religion. I'm a Catholic. I don't care about the flavors of Buddhism and the flavors of Hinduism and the different forms of this, that, and the other thing. But I am interested in one of their insights. Kerouac said this. He was drunk, of course. But he said, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, I'm interested in one of their insights. And what they, what they seem to do, the, they seem to say that uh, I am really uh, not 
uh, who I think I am. There's, a, there's an insight, and it's hard for me to express this without um, accurately, but I think I'm Paul Zoll. But in fact, I'm, I'm not strictly Paul Zoll. Paul Zoll is sort of a kind of an act, sort of a scarecrow. He's kind of a scarecrow or a, or, a, or a puppet who's acting out something, but he's actually part of something, something uh, bigger. Uh, Roman Catholic mystics call this the true self or the big self or the, uh, the, the real self, and they call the ego of Paul Zoll the sort of false self or the little self. And I don't know, I don't even care what they say, but I know it's true. Because as soon as I got out, when you have the near-death experience, you see this little guy, this little guy who's struggling really hard. He's struggling against his, his ideas about himself and the people that he knows and his past and his, his opportunities or his missed opportunities and all the little things that have made him. But he's now looking down and he's saying that that's not the whole story. There's something bigger of which he is a part and I can't really quite explain it, except that often um, that, 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 that it's an insight that has helped me enormously to realize that my life is not about just me, just me, this man here. It's about something of which I am also a part which is bigger than me. Now, that coheres with Christianity historically in all kinds of ways. But for some reason that I do not understand, it was given to people thousands of thousands of years ago in, I don't know, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, parts of India or something to understand that we are not who we appear to be.